Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. The PowerCast is a new bi-weekly audio program for those interested in the top conservative insight and analysis of energy, climate, and environmental issues. My name is Darren Bax, and I'm Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation, in the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. For decades, many conservatives have warned that environmental extremists are trying to use the government to dictate, among other things, how you live, where you live, what you eat, and what you drive. Unfortunately, many recent developments have proven these warnings to be true. In this edition of the PowerCast, we're going to focus and we're going to discuss recent developments regarding efforts to dictate and influence what you drive. Policies limiting the supply of oil are driving up gas prices, and the Biden administration isn't removing harmful policies restricting the sale and use of conventional fuels, but doubling down on its war on energy. The recently enacted Inflation Reduction Act includes provisions that will incentivize people into driving electric vehicles, known as EVs. California's Air Resources Board just issued a regulation banning the sale of new gasoline or diesel-powered cars in just 12 years. Federal fuel efficiency standards are becoming so extreme that it's obvious effort to push people into certain cars, including EVs. Quite simply, there's an all-out effort to try and get Americans to stop driving gas-powered cars and to get into EVs, or to get Americans to just not drive at all. Today, I'm joined by two leading energy experts to discuss how the government is trying to dictate and influence what you drive. Jason Isaac is director of Life Powered, a national initiative of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And Derek Morgan is the executive vice president of the Heritage Foundation. So let's get right to it. First, Derek and Jason, thank you for being here. My pleasure. It's great to be here. I wanted to start with a big picture perspective from both of you. And whether you think environmental extremists and kind of Green New Deal types are really trying to dictate how Americans live their lives on a daily basis. So, Jason, let me start with you. What, what's your take on this? Oh, absolutely. It's about control. It's about uh, doing everything they can to lock us down, as we saw during the COVID lockdowns. They're now trying to do that through green climate change hysteria, their Green New Deals. Uh, really to restrict our freedom. And as I, I tweeted out this morning and tweet often that these climate policies uh, and environmental policies have one thing that they, they result in, and that's separating us from our money and our liberty. And that's that's what we're continuing to see here is, is people are going to get locked down because they can't afford their electric bills. Uh, they're losing their jobs because of the the, the the recession that we're in, which is going to continue to get worse. And so as I hope people are waking up around the world. I'm sure they are in in Sri Lanka and other countries that are just suffering because of three years of bad policies in places like Sri Lanka that have just devastated that economy. So hopefully we'll get a chance to talk a little bit more about that and kind of warn people about what's coming here in in the U.S. Thanks. So, Derek, do you you think the far left is trying to use environmental policy to dictate how we live? Well, I think it definitely is, and it's not just the far left. And you don't have to take my word for it. Just look at what they've said over the years. Uh, they've talked about the need to change energy policies in order to change people's behavior. And this isn't new, unfortunately. They've been telling us this for over a decade. If you remember back in the early part of President Obama's administration, he was talking about uh, wanting to make coal so expensive that coal companies would go bankrupt. Uh, his budget director would talk about making energy more expensive so people would use less of it. So it's part of their design. Uh, They used to be a little more upfront about it and admit it and more intellectually honest about it. Uh, Now they feign uh, interest in trying to reduce gas prices, but their actions are all completely on the opposite side. And so it very much is a matter for them of trying to change our behavior. You mentioned in the top of the show uh, the food we eat, you know, trying to encourage Americans to eat less meat. And look, I'm from Texas. Those Those are real... Uh, you know, fighting words. Uh, and uh, and now they want to try to get rid of the internal combustion engine. California said in just 12 years that they want no one to be able to buy an internal combustion engine car. And uh, that is just a, a ridiculous overreach, and we need to stop it. So let me follow up with you, Derek. Um, I, I find that kind of the these extremists, quite honestly, are, are pushing policies, and they and as they push the policies, they don't take into account the trade-offs of their policies. 
including the cost of the policies, such as higher prices, including gas prices. And and also, even maybe even worse, you just have a complete disregard for the personal choices of Americans. It, it sounds like you would agree with that take. I do. You know, trade-offs are so important because uh, if you look at this and even taking the models that they use to try to predict temperature uh, impacts on their policies, even if you said the United States would tomorrow go to zero emissions, which is where they want to take us, if we did that tomorrow, by the end of, the, uh, by the end of this century, by 2100, the impact on the global temperature would be less than 0.2 degrees Celsius. And that's, again, using their model, uh, which is, you know, very sensitive to the climate. So I think um, that is on one hand, and then on the other hand is massive economic damage. You're, um, our colleagues here at the Heritage Foundation, Kevin Dyeratnan and uh, Katie Tubb and others have looked at this, and they've tried to model what even just a 44% reduction would do. And you say, well, why 44%? It's because they wanted to try to model net zero, but the model couldn't take it. It would break. It just mm-hmm. wouldn't work. And this is the model that the, the Department of Energy uses. And so they look at it, and they, they push the model as far as it could go, 44% reduction, which is roughly in line with Paris for a, a near-term goal that they want. And they saw 7 million fewer jobs in just one year. Uh, this is going to be catastrophic to industries uh, like uh, where I'm from and where Jason calls home in Texas and Louisiana and Pennsylvania, Wyoming, New Mexico, Oklahoma, all the oil-producing uh, regions of the country for sure, all the coal-producing uh, regions, you think West Virginia and all these other places, uh, natural gas, which has had a renaissance. All of this is going to be extremely destructive. So you do have to look at trade-offs. And unfortunately, the other side, they only look at uh, what they think is a, a temperature impact. They looked at they look at nothing else. Well, the only thing that matters is whatever their alleged objective is. And as far as I'm concerned, they're trying to like take every federal agency and make it the mission of that agency just to be about climate change or their specific objectives at the cost and at the expense of what the actual mission of that agency might actually be. You know, so that's I, think that's a, I think that's an excellent point, and it's really a matter of elites versus the people. Uh, the elites, people here in Washington, D.C., inside the Beltway, they get on a one-track myopic mind of we've got to get to net zero, and then all the consultants say, oh, yeah, we can help you get there. And it's like a you know, back-and-forth chorus uh, here in the Beltway that talks about this. But when are the American people consulted? Well, we've, I've seen polling over the last five years. It's very, very consistent. People generally think we should, quote, do something about climate change. And then you ask them, well, and by the way, they're very practical. They want to consider trade-offs. And you ask them, well, how much should we – how much would you be willing to uh, pay in order to do this? About 40 percent of the people will tell you zero, which is probably the right answer. We need to uh, grow ourselves. We need innovation. We don't need a cost mechanism here. But uh, so 40 percent p- say zero, and the median response is about $40. Well, I've got news for you. We're spending w- way more than $40 a year on climate change already just with what we have on the books. And you look at things like the IRA, the fuel economy regulations, all this, it's just layering costs upon costs upon costs. So I, I do want to stress something. So you brought up the fact that Heritage uses the Department of Energy model. And actually, um, can you just briefly explain that and also just how we're actually – you know, it's even conservative what we're, we're doing in terms of using yeah. the, the data. So it's actually probably worse than what we're saying. It is. That's right. The, the Heritage uses the National Energy Modeling System. We call it the Heritage Energy Modeling System. And uh, Kevin Dyeratna, who's here, sta- statistician, PhD, brilliant guy, knows the ins and outs of this model, talks with folks uh, at DOE and other places to make sure uh, that uh, we've got it all tuned up right, and we do. Uh, we have good, you know, replication of our results and so forth. What we did, what he did, was he looked at trying to figure out what these reductions would cost the economy. And the way to do that in that particular model is to put a price on carbon. So this would be similar to what you do if you had an economy-wide carbon tax, something we oppose here at the Heritage Foundation. But it's a good way to try to figure out what would be the cost. So we put that cost of carbon into the model to see how it would affect the economy. And that's how we got to that 44% reduction is through a, a high carbon cost. But honestly, most economists would tell you that that's the most efficient way to change the economy is through a carbon price. What we're doing is is far worse. We're just saying you can't do this. You can't have a gasoline-powered car, for crying out loud. Uh, you know, you've got to have uh, mile-per-gallon requirements that are off the charts. Uh, you can't have natural gas cooking in your house or uh, your water heater. You know, all of these prohibitions are an even worse way to do climate policy. And so what we found was even best-case scenario and even looking at from their perspective, 
uh, this is economically ruinous. So, Jason, I just want to give you a chance to kind of talk about some of these trade-offs and, and, and your thoughts on how they – I would say the left doesn't take into account the trade-offs, certainly in, the, in this kind of climate debate. No, and I'm glad to hear that people are finally starting to talk about some of the, the models and the temperature reduction by doing some of these practices because there's literally zero – I think I think the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, I call it the Idiot Reproduction Act uh, of 2022, <laughs> was, was shown to have a temperature differential of 0. .00009. Yes, that's four zeros followed by a nine after the decimal point reduction by 2100. And so we're giving up so much. We're, we're subsidizing electric vehicles. We're funding environmental justice, climate justice programs uh, around the country. And it's just the, the costs are devastating. We did some research a couple of years ago on what the cost of the Green New Deal would be to Texas and how it would impact our grid and our cost for electricity prices. And I think we estimated electricity prices would quadruple. Uh, and they're seeing that. And, and that's that's nothing compared to what you're seeing in Germany uh, and other places in the EU. I mean, what cost $70 last year, which is about the average cost for electricity for the, the um, an American family in Germany. $70 last year is going to be between $700 and $1,000 per month this winter. Uh, the, the, I mean, those are costs right now, and they're only going to get worse. That's why uh, you can't find wood in, in Germany. There, you just can't buy it, and people are actually going out and cutting down their own so that they're going to be able to heat their homes this winter. Uh, th this is just mass starvation. Uh, it's going to lead to mass death. We've, we've already written about the freezing deaths on the rise in the EU, and that trend is going to continue. And it's this cult-like fascination with net zero and the Kool-Aid is actually net zero, but it's a climate cult. Um, and you have the same result. Uh, you're going to have mass death. Uh, so, But I'm glad to hear that I've heard people on the media talking about the temperature differential that we're going to experience by 2100, and it's it's absolutely nothing. So focusing on greenhouse gases and CO2 in particular do nothing to mitigate a changing climate, but they do everything to increase the cost of energy uh, and, and hurt humans. And, and I really think that's what the left is focused on. They think there's too many of us. You, Jane Goodall at the World Economic Forum that said that we need to get down to a population that we had in 1500. That would be a 95% reduction of global population. She's talking about eliminating humans from the face of the earth to save the earth. And at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, our Life Powered Project, we believe that environmental policy should serve mankind and not the other way around. And so I hope people are waking up around the world that this climate cult is devastating to human flourishing. So, Jason, I'm glad that you um, mentioned environmental justice there. Um, so, so when prices are driven up for energy, which clearly this is exactly what's happening, and it's also being driven up for necessities, this has a disproportionate impact on the poor. And, and the, the left, far left, and well, just the left, talks about environmental justice, yet pushes policies that are making lives very difficult for lower income households, and actually all households, quite honestly, and exacerbating energy policy. So, you know, as they talk about environmental justice, they're kind of promoting the policies that are actually hurting the people they're allegedly trying to help. So, what's your take on that? No, you're absolutely right. In California, there's this uh, group called the 200, and it's over 200 civil rights organizations that wouldn't ideologically align with any of us that are on this podcast right now. Uh, but they're suing the state of California, the California Air Resources Board, for violating the Civil Rights Act, saying that their policies that they're putting in place have a disparate impact on communities of color. Uh, and so it's just it's 80 page lawsuit that's ripe with good talking points about how people are being crushed by policies that are being put in place in California. And what does Gavin Newsom do? He doubles down in banning the sale of the internal combustion engine. Uh, which all that does is it just shifts cost. I, I heard just last week about a, a glass manufacturing facility in Southern California that just got sick and tired of the constant increase in regulations that weren't doing anything to improve the environment, that weren't doing anything to mitigate climate change, but were virtue signaling uh, that politicians can do to their, their far left 
constituents to say, look at what we're doing. Well, this glass manufacturing facility shut down and moved to Mexico. And so increased regulations that don't do anything to improve the environment, really all they do is they just shift production overseas, over the border. And so we export jobs and then we wind up importing that pollution. Uh, I testified in front of the Senate Environment Public Works Committee a couple weeks ago and and talked about mercury deposits and harmful pollution, things that actually impacts human health uh, and how we're a world leader in reducing that pollution. We've reduced harmful pollution 78% over the last five decades. We're number one when it comes to access to clean and safe drinking water. We should be calling on our trading partners to meet air quality standards that improve human health. Uh, because when you take 50% of the vehicles off the road and shut down the government and shut down industry, like happened during the first two months of the COVID lockdowns, there, there were actually cities in, in the United States whose air quality got worse. And there are some cities that saw negligible improvements, but where you saw big improvements were India and China and these countries. And I, I joked during my testimony, I said, of all the technology the Chinese steal from us, it'd be nice if they would utilize our pollution control technology. <laughs> but, but they don't. They could care less about it. And so when we shift production to Mexico or to China or to other countries that just could care less about human rights or environmental controls – that impacts our air quality. That impacts human health here in the United States. And it, it takes one to four weeks for Asian air pollution to, to make its way across to California. And, and that's where almost 80% of our mercury deposits come from in the United States is not from the United States. It's from Asian air pollution. Uh, so what they're doing in California does have a, a disproportionate impact on communities of color, the least among us more than anyone else. And it hurts them even worse when we lose jobs to other countries. We should be manufacturing everything in this country because it would be produced with exceptional quality uh, and environmental concerns as well. So let's focus on specific efforts to dictate or at least influence what people drive and I, one of the most effective ways of doing that uh, is to have policies that drive up gas prices. When you have policies that limit the supply of gas, then prices are going to go up. That's just basic economics. It, yet the Biden administration is doing what it can to limit supply, be it through moratoria on oil leases or other regulatory obstacles. In fact, Biden stated, and just quoting him here, when it comes to gas prices, we're going through an incredible transition that's taking place that, God willing, when it's over, will be stronger and the world will be stronger and less reliant on fossil fuels when this is over. So let me ask, Jason, um, do you think the administration's policies are intended to drive up gas prices? Or at a minimum, at a minimum, do you think their administration recognizes higher prices are the inevitable result of their policies? And, and if so, if they recognize this or it's an intended result, why are they doing this? No, they absolutely are intended to increase the price. I mean, Brian Deese, this is part of the liberal world order and that people are going to have to just basically suck it up with high gas prices because this is necessary to, to have this energy transition. The thing is, the energy transition isn't necessary at all. Even Obama in 2008, he talking about electricity prices, saying they're necessarily going to skyrocket. I mean, and the people did not listen. They didn't listen. He's telling them flat out that prices are going to skyrocket. And now people are up in arms and they're furious about the pain of the pump. They're furious about their electric bills skyrocketing. But this is this is by design. This is all part of the plan. And they're going to continue to do this at the federal level. I think every single branch of or bureaucracy, the fourth branch of government has some sort of climate plan in place to reduce greenhouse gas emissions within their operations, which does nothing to mitigate a changing climate. But again, it does increase the cost of everything we do. So this weaponization of the federal government has been extended to the financial sector and they're colluding together uh, to force an energy transition that's really not necessary for a thousand years. I, it, it's funny, I'll, people will you know, talk about fossil fuels as our 20th century energy, and they want to convert to wind, which I think is maybe 13th century energy. Uh, but I refer to fossil fuels and, and nuclear energy as really our third millennium energy, because we have a thousand year supply of natural gas and unlimited supply of nuclear uh, technology and energy that's available. We could really power, you know, hundreds of years of civilization. And when we do that, people prosper. We've got about a billion people on the face of the earth that are in abject poverty. That number's gone down by 90% over the last 100 years. These are incredible advancements that we've made in mankind. 
uh, over the last hundred years. Deaths from weather-related events are down 98 percent. But you know, again, it's a catastrophic climate crisis that we're that we're living wonderfully well through. The real crisis is the energy crisis that we're experiencing across the face of the earth. And when you have politicians in office like they are now uh, that are caving to this, and financial institutions that are pushing this new this liberal world order, it's frightening to me uh, and to people around the face of the earth. So, so Derek, what's your take on this issue? Yeah, um, I think Jason said it very well. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always been struck when he shares the example of uh, young girls and young women who have to uh, walk for miles and miles for a source of clean water. And maybe they're heating their home uh, with, uh, with dung or with wood, and those are going to have negative health consequences for them. Fossil fuels allow them, they allow us to harness an incredible amount of energy in a very clean way, in a way that makes our life better. And so uh, I, I couldn't commend more folks to check out Life Powered. They do an excellent job of sharing those kinds of stories and also uh, just uh, explaining how energy and, and even traditional fuels, oil, natural gas, uh, make modern life possible. Not just fueling things, but also so many of the things that we have uh, practically everything you look around. In fact, uh, Jason shared an excellent video the other day that I got to see uh, that walked through a typical day of someone just going to work and all the things around them that are made uh, with petrochemicals and, and other uh, traditional fuels. So um, so th that is the positive side of the story of what that enables us to do. I think Jason also hit the nail on the head on the left's assault on these things. Uh, you know, they have a myopic goal in mind. I don't know what's in their heart and what they're uh, – you know, what their intentions are necessarily. I imagine there's probably a bit of a conflict uh, in the Biden administration. Some folks who are the true believers that, that say, yeah, higher prices, that's part of the plan, you know, and uh, let them drive an EV, you know, kind of let them eat cake uh, <laughs> theory of, of this whole thing. And then you probably have some others that, are, that look at the gas prices and the blowback and say, uh-oh, this isn't good. And so I think there's probably a bit of a conflict, and you see that a little bit with 5% of their rhetoric that acknowledges prices are a problem. Uh, but I think you got to look at their actions more than their words, and their actions are universally terrible across the board. They're not making it possible to produce more. Uh, they're putting their, um, their 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 thumb to the screw against the uh, refining industry, which um, is a fantastic industry that we're the number one fuel producer in the world, and um, and we can be competitive with anyone. We can do it safer and cleaner, just like Jason was pointing out here. Uh, but they continue to just put obstacle upon obstacle to that industry. You think of the renewable fuel standard. You think of uh, the permitting that they won't allow. And uh, it's time to unleash American energy. Just a few years ago, we were energy dominant, and we can get back there. So let's um, turn to government efforts to prop up and even require people to stop driving gas-fueled cars and instead turn to EVs. So Jason, could you uh, briefly explain what EV policies are in the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah, I think the, the most glaring one is the one that Ford and other companies asked for. Uh, it's interestingly enough that, you know, f on August 5th, Ford joined with a bunch of other companies and asked Congress to pass the IRA 2022. Uh, and then just three days later, the Senate passes it. And, and included in that provision was a $7,500 credit for electric vehicles. So on August 8th, the Senate passes it, all but assuring that it's going to pass Congress and, and wind up on the president's desk and will become law. So what happens a day later? Ford raises the prices of their EVs by up to $8,500. Hey, we're going to get $7,500. Let's raise the prices $8,500. And then, but it's interesting because the left has been talking about all the jobs that are going to be created by this energy transition, which I, I use the analogy or the, the metaphor sometimes that it's like going into Subway and getting 15 people to make your sandwich. It's not very efficient. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of this. But uh, interestingly enough, just a few days after uh, the House passed the bill, Ford announces they're laying off 3,000 people. So eliminating jobs, uh, which is just that's not what we've been told. The green energy transition is going to create more jobs and it's going to be great for the environment. Well, it's neither. It's it's doing exact opposite of what we're being told. Uh, and that should be a warning of, of when we listen to politicians, maybe maybe what they're saying that they're going to do for us is actually going to do something to us and be much more harmful. But that $7,500 vehicle credit is probably the, the biggest, most glaring one uh, that we've seen. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the, the labor 
point, and, and there's kind of a a lack of understanding regarding efficiency. The fact that uh, conventional fuels are more efficient and is actually made and not requires many people or as many inputs is a good thing. I mean, if we really wanted to kind of, it, it, you know, the best source of energy isn't the one that requires like 20,000 people to kind of dig holes or something, you know, that doesn't <laughs> accomplish anything. I mean, we can do, just do that. We can just say everybody get a shovel. Um, but so people don't understand there is costs involved. And what we want is we want the money that's not a good use of you know the, the the resources that we have, and then you know not surprisingly of course the the subsidy certainly uh, incentivizes the company then to respond accordingly. So, so Jason, you kind of anticipated some of my follow up questions there, and so so Derek, I wanted to ask you just because it's so much focus on EVs, um, who buys EVs in the first place, and are the EV subsidies aren't they just going to the wealthy people? They are. Um, you know, the, if you look at the statistics, the the biggest pot of EVs are going to California. Historically, it's it's been about half most years. I think about 40% of EVs are now registered in California. And that's because California has been mandating EVs uh, for more than a decade. And so uh, there, there's so many problems. Where to start? Yes, it's mostly the wealthy. It's mostly people that um, you know, we, we saw a transformation in the EVs through Tesla. And you got to have you know tip your hat to them in a way they made it into a performance product and a very a luxury product. And so a lot of the people that are buying it are very wealthy, and it's maybe perhaps a third or fourth or even more car for them. Uh, and they have have particular performance characteristics and so forth. So the fact that we're giving shelling out seventy five hundred dollars in the federal level, and California's got several thousand dollars of its state tax credit as well. Plus you have the ZEV mandate that functions as a cross-subsidy. Sorry, hopefully your eyes aren't glazing over, (laughs) listeners. Uh, But essentially, if you buy a Ram 1500, uh, then FCA is going to have to turn around and buy a credit from Tesla, uh, which means more money in Tesla's pocket and less money in your pocket when you buy a traditional car. And uh, at one time, I added up all of these subsidies. It was over $20,000 in subsidies in these kind of regulatory and tax credit schemes. And so it it is very wealthy people that are buying these cars. In fact, it's it's overwhelming the wealthy that typically buy new cars to begin with, especially nowadays when we have a supply crunch. And then the people that are buying these cars that on average are $60,000 or more uh, is just – it's definitely the wealthy that are buying it. We see that with who's, who's getting the tax credit. Um, you know, well over 80 percent of the people that are getting the tax credit are well into the six figures. Derek, you, you hit on something that, that most people don't understand, but every time you buy a new internal combustion engine car, you're actually subsidizing the purchase of an electric vehicle for some you know, wealthy person uh, to buy a toy. Because of those corporate average fuel economy standards, that there is this impact. I think, I think it's been calculated a little over $1,000 per car. So whether you're buying an electric car or not, you're helping pay for electric vehicles because of this over-regulation from the federal government uh, to comply with the corporate average fuel economy standards or also known as CAFE standards. Yeah, that's right. And a friend of mine likes to say you're, you're making it – your subsidy, you're making it possible for a millionaire to buy a car from a billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> Sad but true. Sad but true. So, so Jason, let me follow up with you. There's an assumption that if people just buy these EVs and use electricity instead of petroleum, this will help with greenhouse gas emissions. And they're just kind of an underlying assumption about that. Is that even true? No, it's not true at all. And it's it's actually just on par with an internal combustion engine over the life of that vehicle and the miles driven because that electricity has to come from somewhere. And those products have to be manufactured somewhere. Uh, and they're manufactured predominantly fi- powered by coal-powered electricity. So I, I love coal-fired cars, um, but I, I'll take my, my internal combustion engine Ford F-150 any day of the week uh, because I've got a much longer range. But no, it, it, there's just no improvement in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It's just your virtue signal can shine a little bit brighter uh, if you're driving a Prius or, you know, another type of EV. Uh, They're actually, and some studies are showing they're more harmful. There's uh, studies that have come out showing tire wear. And you think about this, if you've ever had an opportunity to drive an electric vehicle, the torque they have and the acceleration they have is astronomical. Well, imagine the impact that that has on tires. Tires are designed for uh, relatively lower torque 
uh, internal combustion engines, and they're not designed for these high torque tires or electric vehicles. And so the tire wear is much greater than anticipated. And uh, there's there's studies that have shown there's an increase in pollution just from the tire wear, from that rubber wearing down on the road and making its way into the air and then being stirred up into dust. Um, that's particulate matter that we're seeing coming off those tires. And another thing that's not being considered is the weight impact on roads. And my background before I got into the legislature a decade ago was I worked in the trucking industry and dealing with trucking companies that were constantly trying to reduce their weights. Uh, and and they're paying these huge fees and registration fees and, and, and other fees uh, to accommodate for the fact that they do more wear and tear on the roads. And you look at EVs. I mean, some of these electric vehicles, just a passenger four-door electric vehicle weighs more than a full-size Chevy Tahoe internal combustion because the weights of the batteries. I mean, we're talking thousands of pounds of more weight. So as we see more EVs hitting the market, which I think is about 5% of total vehicle sales last year were EVs, we're still at less than 2% of total market saturation in the U.S. is electric vehicles. But imagine as that number increases, the wear and tear that's going to be done to roads and intersections. And then the government's going to come asking for more taxes so they can spend more money to repair roads for a problem that the government created. Yeah, well said. And, and you know, an interesting thing to look at this, if the if the real goal was to reduce emissions, um, you actually would, would see uh, more encouragement of plug-in hybrid electric vehicles that have a smaller battery. You're not hauling around thousands of pounds of battery. When you normally just use the, you could use the battery for 20, 30 miles and then switch on to a gasoline engine. But that's not good enough for the left. They do not want that internal combustion engine at all. You got to have this giant battery that you're lugging <laughs> around all, the way, all over the place. And um, you could actually, you know, you could make 10 plug in electric hybrid cars or so uh, for one battery electric car using all the same mining elements and all the rest. And we haven't even gotten into the environmental uh, impact of mining and, and so forth. And so you, if you were looking at this from an environmental perspective, you'd be open to that kind of a solution, but they just aren't. It, for them, it's, it's an on-off switch, and it's internal combustion engine equals evil. We have incredible untapped oil resources. I think we've talked about that. And we don't have to be dependent on unfriendly countries at all when it comes to oil. But when it comes to EVs, does the U.S. rely on other countries and especially countries we wouldn't consider to be our allies? Unfortunately, we do. Uh, the problem here is that, uh, in fact, I, I pointed this out in a recent article that I wrote. Um, we are pretty relatively self-sufficient on petroleum. And in fact, we export petroleum products all around the world. But on the EV side, you need to mine things like copper and lithium, uh, graphite, et cetera, and then you need to process them also. And as most of your listeners may know, those are all dominated by China. And so we're in a situation where we've achieved for, the large, for a large part, going back to what every president since at least Nixon said, we wanted energy independence. Uh, we've basically got that with our oil industry to now uh, voluntarily moving to an all-electric future where China dominates 100 percent of graphite, uh, majority of lithium processing. You know, the, they own the, the mining rights and the processing on copper and lithium and so forth. So we're actually voluntarily moving to a situation where we're putting ourselves – right in China's crosshairs. So Derek, in your recent article, um, which you can see on the Daily Signal, uh, you kind of talk about some of the practical problems with just for drivers in driving EVs. Can you bring, you know, address those? Yeah, I'm glad for Jason's sake that he's got a gasoline F-150 uh, because if he was trying to tow with one of the new uh, F-150 electric vehicles, he probably wouldn't make it 100 miles. That's what Car and Driver found. Motor Trend couldn't even make it 100 miles. And so it's completely impractical if, uh, unless, you know, the lake is 40 miles from you. Uh, but if you're going to take any kind of a trip and haul anything, it's, it's not really practical for that. The other problem is you have this idea of range. You have a nameplate range, but there's a lot of things that impact that. Manufacturers typically tell you not to charge above 80 to 90 percent in order to keep your battery in its best health and not to let it go below 20 percent. Okay, so you're already knocked off 30 to 40 percent of your range there. If you have uh, weather. So if you have, say, a 20-degree day and, and you have the uh, temerity to want to have the heat on, then the range is reduced, AAA tells us, by 40%. You know, what's left? Uh, it means you're going to be going to uh, a charger, and uh, the manufacturer tells you not to use supercharging too often. That degrades the battery also. 
So I guess you can go and, and plug in somewhere and go up and down the snack aisle for three or four hours and uh, get charged back up and head back to, to do your vacation. And we can laugh because, you know, as individuals, you know, that's one thing. But think about all the working people out there that are in their trucks all day. Think about plumbers. Think about electricians. Think about realtors. Think about uh, landscaping crews. And California is so off the deep end <laughs> that not only can, do you have to have an electric truck if you're a landscaper, your mowers, your blowers, your edgers all have to be electric too. And if you've got a yard that's any bigger than a sixth of an acre, you probably know that those things are practically worthless. Uh, a gasoline-powered uh, lawnmower is going to last you all day. So you're going to have folks, time is money, right, where they're just sitting around not able to work. Uh, it's just another way that this is an elite uh, uh, issue where the elites think, oh, an electric, I love my electric car. I have my garage at home, and then uh, you know my high-tech employer has a charging spot for me at the office. Okay, well, that's not reality for most of us. Uh, so why are you forcing it on everybody? So staying with California um, – Derek, there there have been some recent developments with the California Air Resources Board regarding EVs, and can you explain what happened? Yeah, so California, unfortunately, has been heading this direction for a while. Uh, they are uh, requiring electric vehicles as a percentage of the fleet uh, by 2026, by 2030, and then by 2035, it's 100% has to be uh, a so-called zero-emission vehicle. For the reasons Jason very articulately uh, said, there's no such thing as a zero-emission vehicle, but they declare them zero-emission vehicle. They ignore that there are emissions to go in to produce it. They start off with a deficit vis-a-vis -vis an internal combustion engine. And then depending on the grid, they may never catch up. Um, but, yeah, so 100 percent, so you can't have an internal combustion engine. You can't have a diesel engine to buy one. And I was telling a group the other day that I'm seriously thinking about opening up a car dealership in Yuma, Arizona. <laughs> because, you know, I, this isn't yeah. going to work for everybody. Uh, and, of course, we know what the next step will be. It won't just be a sales ban. Then it will be a registration ban. And then at some point they're going to confiscate it. I mean it's, it seems like the logical progression of where they're going. And, um, you know, you, you think about what kind of policy this is and you think about uh, Havana. If you've ever been to Havana, they have some really nice classic cars because they couldn't import any American cars. <laughs> so you've got 50s and 60s cars that are beautiful. Maybe that's what, we'll look, that's what California will look like by 2050. We'll have lots of – you know, model year 2034 F-150s driving around. What's interesting is that it wasn't too long ago that the stuff that we we're talking about would have just been – we would have been thought of as kooky. Are you just, just some radical conservatives, blah, 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 and here we are. I know, and, you know, I, I, I hate to reveal my, uh, my uh, conspiracy mind a little bit. I'm, I'm the guy that's still got 100-watt you know, light bulbs in his basement. <laughs> Uh, but that was really – you know, I, I said at the time, like, this is a canary in the coal mine. If you're going to just start banning products like this without any regard for uh, their usefulness or any kind of a cost-benefit analysis, you're just going to declare something bad. And I, I look back at that time. Those 100-watt bulbs were made by GE with union labor in the United States of America. The CFLs, which, by the way, you better not break because the EPA will tell you you have to open up every window of your house and let it air <laughs> out for hours – uh, those CFLs are all built in China. So what, we were shooting ourselves in the foot, and we're here with the same playbook. Uh, we have internal combustion engine cars, uh, plates from America, Asia. A lot of those cars are built here in the United States, and we're, and we're now going to force everybody to go to EVs. Uh, Tesla's now building more in China than they are in the U.S. Um, I can see the handwriting on the wall. You know, history may not repeat, but it certainly rhymes. So Derek, just a quick follow-up, uh, kind of a process question. Doesn't the federal government have to provide California a waiver to do yes, this? Yes, that's right. So this is a – I hope none of our listeners are um, tricked into thinking this is federalism. Like, oh, yeah, California can do it at once and Texas can do it at once. That's not what happens here. California has a special exemption in the law uh, for, um, for air pollution under the Clean Air Act. California and only California has the right to ask the federal government for more stringent uh, air pollution controls. Now – these were the kind of things that Jason was talking about earlier, mercury and the other criteria pollutants. That's what it was designed for. Uh, but unfortunately, it's become also allow it to do CO2. So uh, President Obama gave them a waiver as well. Uh, President Bush had denied it. President Trump had denied it. But Obama had given it. And now Biden looks like he's going to give it. And then once California goes down its crazy route, then other states can join in. And I think you could probably expect a dozen states, uh, certainly the West Coast and the Northeast, most of those states, to follow California 
It's not federalism at all because Texas can't do something opposite of this. Texas has to do the federal. So it's a one-way ratchet, and it's only for California. And it's uh, the president ought to deny it. And if he doesn't, then the Congress ought to take it up and uh, reverse it. I can't help myself, but I have to ask this. I mean, the reason for California getting the special treatment was because of the California air quality was worse, but specific to California and localized things. That's right. That has absolutely nothing to do with greenhouse gas emissions, you know, even from anybody's perspective. Uh, so it doesn't even make sense. The whole logic does it. You're exactly right. You nailed it. And, you know, it was that pollution from Asia we were talking about earlier. That combined with California's topography, the way that you have mountains, you have the ocean, uh, it does make it a challenging area for air quality. And so when the when the government passed the Clean Air Act in the late 60s, they said, well, California, they may want more stringent to battle smog, to battle actual pollutants. And it wasn't until, you know, 30 plus years later, nearly 40 years later, that they came up with this theory that uh, that CO2, which mixes uniformly in the atmosphere on a global level and doesn't affect California locally any way different than it does, you know, Chile or China, uh, they they invented this idea that they could have an exemption for that too. So, Jason, uh, you're seeing what's happening in California. Why should people – around the country outside of California be worried about what California is doing as it relates to banning new gas and diesel power vehicles. Well, yeah, I think I want to address one thing that Derek talked about was confiscation sure. of vehicles. Um, and that's, you know, I imagine there's some certain people that are like, oh, these are conspiracy guys. No one's ever going to confiscate my vehicle. Well, if you don't <laughs> think the federal government can confiscate your vehicle, guess again, because it's already happened. I, there was someone that tried to import a, a Land Rover Defender from the United Kingdom a few years ago, and it was confiscated at the port of entry and destroyed because it didn't meet U.S. emissions requirements. So no no leeway for this person to update the, the technology in this vehicle. It was destroyed and crushed, and which is absolutely heartbreaking and crushing. But my thought process is like, wait a second, there are vehicles that are sold in the, in the UK and other places around the world that don't meet US emission standards. And it's these same automobile manufacturers that are that are signing up onto these letters to ask for these EV credits and want to <laughs> reduce greenhouse gas emissions that have signed on to uh, comply with the Paris Agreement. But yet they produce a car that's less superior than what they produce and manufacture in the United States. It just it just blows my mind to think that there are automobile manufacturers that are making cars that actually have increased pollution in other countries. And I, I've experienced this firsthand in travels around the world. I'm like, gosh, these highway cars are terrible. And it's because they don't meet Americans' emission requirements and or comply with CARB, which is one thing I'd love to see. If we've got any state policymakers on the uh, on their listening in, I'd love to see some bills introduced that that require that automobile manufacturers show how much it costs to comply with CARB, uh, because I think people should understand what the cost impacts are for complying with California regulations, even if you don't live in California, because it does have this impact. Uh, to every other state because most automobile manufacturers are building their cars to comply with CARB, uh, which which is just absolutely awful. It does nothing, again, to improve the environment. It just increases the cost of automobiles and forces people in older, less safe vehicles. So the confiscation is a real thing. So normally when you – know, one of the goals um, to kind of try to impose state regulations and go be way beyond any federal standard is – Companies will then say, "There's a, you know, it's really difficult to comply with the different state laws." So they'll come to Congress and create a want a national standard and say, "Let's just make the California standard the national standard." And, and Derek, I'll just go to you real mm-hmm. quick. Do you think that's you know, is that a fear, real fear here, or it is? And and not to get too deep into the history, but this is the third major round of fuel economy regulations uh, since around 2007. And the other two times that it was done. It was done as a uniform policy so that as much as is possible, the federal and California and the federal DOT and the federal EPA and the California um, standards would all be equal. They didn't do that this time. Uh, For reasons that are pretty complicated because of their litigation strategy, they didn't do it. Uh, But yeah, they're making it very difficult for auto companies to be able to have a uniform product. That's for sure. And you hear the complaints from them all of the time that uh, they they don't want to have to produce different cars for different markets. Some of them have announced on their own that they're going all electric. 
Uh, now, I'm sure that's subject to change uh, based on what people do with their purchasing decisions, but um, it, it is it is a problem. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the biggest problem is that California is just way out of step. Why should California essentially be driving the policy for the rest of the United States? Uh, it's completely out of whack. That's why this waiver should be rejected. So we talked about a lot of different policies that kind of dictate or influence how people they try to get them to drive EVs or what they drive generally. And one, and which we've talked about and which we get into just a little more detail, is uh, federal fuel efficiency standards. And so, Jason, could you explain how federal fuel efficiency standards impact what people drive? Yeah, and we talked a little bit earlier about the CAFE standards. It's corporate average fuel economy standards, and these numbers get ratcheted tougher and tougher uh, every couple of years. But as a like, so Ford has got to produce across their entire fleet have to meet a certain mile per gallon requirement. Uh, and it's you talk about EVs compared to internal combustion engines. The 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 EPA rates the internal combustion engines uh, their range of miles per gallon based on real world experience. So driving in twenty degree weather and driving in ninety degree weather uh, with a full load and and the air conditioning or the heater actually running as compared to how they rate an EV uh, in a lab at seventy two degrees with no air conditioning on, no wind. And no heat on. Uh, and so there's that favoritism that goes into EVs. But uh, the, the manufacturer of, of all their vehicles has got to meet a certain mile per gallon requirement. And so uh, they produce much smaller, cheaper, inefficient, less safe vehicles and practically make no money on those. And then the cars that actual Americans demand, larger SUVs, uh, they, they mark those up significantly, and that's why the cost of those have increased so much over the last couple of decades. It's, it's astonishing to me to find out how much a new car is, and it's not uncommon to see a new SUV at over $80,000. And it's like, golly, that's just it, – it's just incredible how expensive it is. And, and and that's why we're seeing cars on the road for 12 and 13 years by average now, which fits my family well. We've got multiple 10-year vehicles on the road uh, right now. So it does have an impact across the entire uh, cost and impacts for consumers. So, Derek, Jason brought up safety mm-hmm. as a result of the fuel efficiency standards. Can you just briefly we – we've been talking about trade-offs, and it seems like one tr- key trade-off would be safety mm-hmm. that does seem to be properly considered. Just can you bring yeah, that up? Absolutely. So uh, Jason hit the nail on the head on turnover. So by these new fuel economy regulations, you're making all the cars more expensive, so people buy fewer new cars. Uh, newer cars have more safety features. You know, uh, lane detection, blind spots, uh, better new generation airbags, better brakes, um, emergency braking, all of that. So you're not getting the benefit of those technologies because the cars are more expensive. Uh, You also have uh, potential concerns around lightweighting, although some of the lightweighting material these days is really, really safe. Uh, So um, what's interesting is that DOT, which has that corporate average fuel economy standard, has to consider cost and it has to consider safety when it sets these requirements. EPA doesn't. EPA never was given the authority to regulate fuel economy. They took it and declared that they had it because they declared CO2 a, a dangerous you know, pollutant. And so then they, then they came up with, this, with their requirements. Uh, the reason why uh, they, they went first this time is because they can also force EVs. DOT is not allowed to force this technology. So EPA decided they don't have to consider safety. They don't even really have to consider cost at the end of the day. And they decided they were going to push these requirements so high that a, a high percentage of the cars had to be electric. And then DOT went second for the first time. Remember, they were doing it together before. DOT went second for the first time and said, oh, well, um, we're just going to take it for granted that EVs are going to make up whatever percent of the fleet, and then we'll do the rest of the fuel economy regulations at a high rate. Um, but, yes, uh, people understand trade-offs. They're on the window sticker. You have what the mile per gallon is. Uh, you you have all the features that you can consider. Safety can be is high in some consumers' mind. Performance in others. Range, utility, um, excitement, performance. There's all kinds of reasons people can make those decisions. And we know this environmental um, uh, purported reason for it really can't be it if you're actually looking at the data and even looking at their own temperature models. I, I don't even know how many zeros are after the decimal point. Until uh, you get to a, a digit for what the impact of this uh, these fuel economy regulations would do, it's basically nothing. So, let's turn to solutions as we close out. Um, 
And briefly, Jason, what needs to be done to push back and ensure that Americans are not, and and not the government, decide what to drive? So Americans should be able to decide what to drive. Government shouldn't. How do we make that happen? Uh, ensure that the left is not doing what they're continuing to be doing. Well, I think the states need to push back. And, you know, an idea that I had, like I mentioned, was sticker shock, showing people what the costs are complying with these overburdensome regulations so the automobile manufacturers can then break down those particular costs. Uh, I'll tell you another area where we've been successful in Texas is we're not only seeing these policies being dictated by the federal government, by the UN, the World Economic Forum, this, 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 these people that are in search of a liberal world order, we're seeing it being pushed by financial institutions uh, that are complying with Paris, that are forcing companies that they invest in with pension dollars from state employees, uh, first responders, teachers to comply, forcing the companies they invest in to comply with the Paris Agreement, which which doesn't do anything, again, to mitigate a changing climate. Um, and some people say, well, gosh, it's worth that 0. 0.00009 degrees that we're going to stave off in 2100 when we've proven over the last 100 years that any warming that we're going to see that's caused by man is going to continue to be mild and manageable. And human prosperity and human flourishing, in my opinion, are much more important. And it's a real injustice uh, that Derek talked about, the women that are walking. Women spend 200 million hours a day walking to collect water. And I think that's a real injustice because here in Texas, I tell people we stand over the key to ending that global, that global poverty. And we do it with our energy that's produced more responsibly anywhere else in the world. So we've, we've really got to have states push back and, and like some of the policies that we've passed in Texas that say if you're going to boycott fossil fuels and the state's no longer going to do business with you. And just last week, the state announced that BlackRock, the world's largest financial institution, and the, uh, is on our blacklist of companies that we can no longer do business with. So no more pension funds from BlackRock. We're not going to give them state tax dollar money to use against us. And I think this is going to be one of the biggest areas of opportunity and success that we're going to continue to see sweep across this country from states that want to push and fight back. Derek, what are your solutions. Yeah, I think the state level is key. Jason covered that really well. At the federal level, uh, Congress really ought to push back with any tools that they can. I don't expect that with the current makeup of the Congress. Um, you know, Ultimately, elections have consequences. Ideas have consequences. I would say there's some legal um, avenues here as well. Unfortunately, we're seeing the federal government go way past its legal bounds. We saw that with immigration, with DACA a few years ago, where President Obama said he didn't have the right to uh, to declare these people uh, legal in the U.S., and then he went in and did it anyway. He got sued. Uh, you seen that with the student loan thing that they just did a few weeks ago. Uh, I don't think he's got the power to do that either. And then you saw the Supreme Court strike down EPA's attempt to completely change over the utility sector to go from fossil fuels to, to renewables, uh, even though they were never given that authority by Congress. And the Supreme Court said Congress actually, actually has to give you that authority specifically. And I think you'll see a similar thing with the EV issue. It's very similar, in fact. They're trying to change over the fleet of vehicles from one fuel source to another. Congress never told them they could do that. So I think we will push back uh, legally. But ultimately, we have to fight with our ideas. We have to point out this is all pain, no gain, and that you can decide a lot better than Washington and certainly Sacramento what car you drive. Derek and Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. Once again, I'm Darren Baxt, Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation at the Heritage Foundation. And I want to thank all of you who are listening to the program and hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. Please tell your family, friends, and colleagues about the PowerCast and be on the lookout for the next edition coming out in two weeks. Thank you again.